If you have your Bibles handy, um, we are uh, coming back to Hebrews this evening, although we will not be spending much time there as a rule. Uh, this will be a, a topical sermon of sorts as we will kind of remain in this topical frame of reference for the next several weeks. We are several weeks into uh, a study of a contrast between the sun and angels. And we considered a couple of weeks ago the relationship of angels to the law, and uh, that was, as we determined it, the, the focal point of Paul even bringing angels up. Why would he bring angels up? What's the deal? Uh, is this just him saying that, that um, the son is superior to men and then superior to angels? Well, no. He didn't just say to men. He said to the prophets. And then he got into angels. And, and as we get into Hebrews chapter 2, uh, this gives way to a discussion about the law, which was given by angels, right? And, um, or or the, the, the word which was given by angels, which we then connected as we went through the Old Testament to the law itself. And so we see then that the point was not that Jesus is better than the prophets and better than the angels, but rather that Jesus is superior to the law and the prophets, right? Which would be that Jesus' message and intent was a fulfillment and a heightening of the Old Testament law and prophets. And if that is the case, then as we considered last time we were in the Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews, excuse me, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. We ought to be listening because what Christ has brought us is significantly more sure, more earnest, and heightened, a heightened form of that which was found in the law. And of course, the law, given by disposition, uh, uh, the disposition of angels, was resolute. How much more resolute, then, is this gospel of grace? So we talked through all of this, recognizing the authority of the testator, and this presents a good opportunity for us to consider something else which doesn't necessarily come up all that often in preaching, but I imagine comes up somewhat often in people's minds. And this would be the topic of angels. We considered in Hebrews chapter 2 this idea of angels. We walked through uh, a couple of weeks thinking through the nature of angels, thinking through Christ's superiority to the angels, thinking through uh, the relationship between the angels and the law. But what about angels themselves? And that's what I'd like to talk about today, walking through the nature of angelic beings, learning some lessons thereabouts. Now, I have preached messages in the past on the spiritual battle that we face and the nature of fighting that battle and the nature of angelic and demonic beings in relation to that battle. That's not going to be my focus today. Uh, we have spoken in various contexts about the strong push of darkness in culture and society. I've spoken about that even in this last year. But my focus today are on the beings themselves, not necessarily the battles which we face or which they are a part of. And by necessity uh, of time, this will be very much a survey. I apologize. You're, I'm, I'm, I'm not giving you everything that I'd like to give you, but I also don't want to go beyond a sermon in this. Um, it's something that I don't want to get too distracted from. Uh, I've, I've told you already the next several weeks in Hebrews chapter 2, we'll be uh, considering the nature of signs and wonders, and, and I am allowing myself to, to do three messages on that. It, it started out as one message, um, and it got very, very, very long, and uh, I wrote the whole thing, and I said, this cannot be one message, and um, it actually ends up needing to be three messages as far as time constraints are concerned, and so I had a nice even breakup, and we were able to do that, but, um, but I don't want to do that with every one of these topics. Now, as we begin today, it is important to gain a measure of insight into how to study angels. In the Bible, both Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek, the word angel is a word which means messenger. And it's not always used to describe spiritual beings, but also humans sent by God for various purposes. It's even used of God himself when we think of uh, the angel of the Lord. Now, in our Bibles, the word angel is used, and that takes out a portion of the ambiguity of these texts, that we do see times where the word will be variously translated in different ways. And so when we see the word angel, we have a measure of um, linguistic confidence that the people who translated our Bibles um, through context, through care, especially with the King James, in that there were so many eyes 
that, that viewed that text before it was published and agreed upon, um, there, there is a measure of confidence that when we see the word angel, we are dealing, in fact, with angels and not just with messengers. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I walked you through my thought process in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 as it related to the nature of the, the words spoken by angels, right? And I talked to you how, well, okay, the word angel there is messenger, and so I, I, you, you thought with me through the process of, well, maybe Hebrews 1 is not talking about angelic beings. Maybe it's just talking about those prophets, those, those messengers. But then we, we were able to invalidate that, that idea based upon how they're described in the text and the verses that they're connected to in the Old Testament, right? So this is the process that one would go through as you're attempting to discern through this word messenger whether or not we're speaking of some sort of spirit being or whether we're speaking of a human person. It's important to know that this word itself, however, is somewhat broad. Now, there are other ways that angels are described in the Bible other than with the word messenger. One of the most prominent words being that, that is used is the word star or stars. Stars can, of course, in the scriptures be literal, talking about the physical, literal stars that we would see in the sky. They're also used regularly in visions to speak of groups of people. It is not uncommon in visions uh, such as Joseph's vision, right, where he saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars do obeisance to him, those stars being his brothers. So we see groups of people that can be represented. In prophecy, we often see Israel represented by a number of stars, 12 stars. Uh, uh, see see uh, a vision of a woman with, with, with a crown with 12 stars on her head, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And so we see these various instances of stars being used uh, to speak of groups of people or individuals. But when used outside of visions, and when referenced in a way that goes beyond the natural characteristics of balls of gas burning in space, stars most regularly speak of angels. Now, one other term that's regularly used as you study about angels is the term sons of God. It's a term most often, and possibly, depending on how you interpret things, uh, it's most often, at least, and possibly, uh, well, it's, it's exclusive, uh, most often, at least, and possibly exclusively, that's what I'm getting at, used to speak of angelic beings, at least as it relates to the Old Testament. So let's walk through several points. And I give you that because I'm not going to be able to give you everything this evening. So I just gave you a little bit of foundation by which, if you're going to study it for yourself, take the passages I give you, chase them down a little bit, spend a little more time in it. If you want to do that, you've got some of the tools necessary to be able to do that. Uh, I'm going to, very similar to what I did this morning, walk through a point-by-point -point message. So typically, in a typical sermon, I'll, I'll give you a text, I'll walk through the text, and then at the end, I might give you some points of application. I'm not going to do that this evening. This evening, I'm going to walk through points, which is somewhat typical of my, um, my topical sermons. So the first point that we, we need to consider this evening and foundational to the nature of angels, we see that angels are created beings. One of the unique ways that God presents himself in scriptures is that he is the uncreated, eternal, and ever-existent God. No beginning and no ending. He is and always was. And as far as God has seen fit to reveal to mankind, he is the only being that is and always was, the only uncreated eternal being in this sense. To this end, we would understand angels to be, in fact, created beings. And this is generally seen in Psalm 148, where we read this. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him. Uh, praise ye him, all his angels. Praise ye him, all his hosts. Praise ye him, sun and moon. Praise him, all ye stars of light. Praise him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. So here we see the angels called to praise him with the sun and the moon and the stars, the heaven of heavens, and firmament. Relating these things to praise God specifically because God commanded, and they were created. We would then recognize that, at least as the psalmist was concerned, he lotted angels in with all of these things that were created, the sun and the moon and the stars and the light and everything else. And with them, he added the angels, calling all of these things the things that God commanded, and they were created. And because we know that they were there at creation, 
this adds this great question of when were they created? We would believe that they were created very early on in God's work. And again, there's a, a great deal of controversy here. When we hit, hit Genesis, we might speak to this controversy a little bit more. When God is interrogating Job in Job chapter 38 about his demands toward the end of the book, we read this in verses 4 through 7. God asks Job, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hast laid the, the measures thereof if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Who laid the cornerstone thereof when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So we see that God laid the foundations of the earth. And speaking in poetic terms about its for formation and establishment, he says that the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy as he laid the foundations of the earth. Now here we see these terms morning stars and sons of God, both very clearly referring to angelic beings here, and they were present when the earth was being formed. Now, this puts the creation of angels in two possible places, uh, at least within the realm of how we believe biblical creation to have taken place. Either they were created before the creation week, which is always possible as God has not seen fit to tell us anything uh, of what existed before time, or they were effectively a part of the first day of creation when God said, let there be light, and there was light. And uh, within the wheelhouse of our interpretive method, again, this is not what I'm getting into this evening, but uh, my interpretive method and, and, and those that, that we would uh, agree with in this uh, would believe that God's entire created work happened within those, that, that creation week. And as such, it would lend me to the interpretation that the first day of creation would be the most likely scenario for this creation of angels. Not only because we have no record of any creative process outside of this week, but also because as angels are described in Scripture, they are described as being creatures of light. In fact, our great enemy, Satan, his angelic name was Lucifer. As far as we know from Scripture, again, there's a little bit of uh, debate as to this in certain circles, but it's generally understood and accepted in orthodox circles that Lucifer, as described in Scripture, is the being that we now know to be the devil or Satan. And that word Lucifer literally means star of light. Consider his description in Isaiah 14, verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? God describes one who we would understand to be Satan as being named Lucifer or star of light. And he would be described as the sun of the morning, which is the concept of the sunrise or the light at dawn. Angels are described in scripture as being radiant, be they the creatures that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter one, which he describes uh, with, in the terms of lightning and fire or the angels which came to the shepherds by night to announce Christ's birth, of which it is described in Luke 1 that the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Angels are often, even in human imagery of them, associated with light. When you see murals and, and, and uh, depictions of angels, uh, you would see them as bathed or clothed in light. And this is uh, a concept which has a tremendous amount of precedence as it relates to Scripture. So, for God to have said, let there be light, particularly recognizing that at this time the sun, moon, and stars had not yet been created, there is anecdotal reason to believe that the angels were perhaps a part of that light-creating process. Either way, however, the point would stand that as far as the Scriptures would relate, we would understand the angelic beings to be created beings. Second, we see that angels are not just created beings, but they are spiritual beings. The essence of a spiritual being is that it does not consist of matter or the material elements with which God created the material world. Angels are not material beings. 
They are spiritual beings, meaning they are not bound by the material world, nor by its properties, nor by its laws. We talked a little bit today about the relationship of God to time, right? And the nature of God being outside of time because God created time and God is outside of that time. But we don't just necessarily see God as being outside of time, do we? We don't know of anything in the scriptures that would relate to the concept of angelic beings being inside of time, being bound by time, uh, being uh, bound to age or, or any of those elements. We know that our spirits, the immaterial part of us, is eternal, that it is created, and yet once it is created, it has an eternality to it whereby our spirits will either end up in that place of eternal life or that place of eternal death. But one thing that we do not see in scripture is the the, the annihilation of the spirit. There is various doctrines out there, doctrine of annihilationism that says that eventually the spirits of the damned will, will be annihilated and disappear uh, in sort of a Catholic purgatory, not really a purgatory, but a Catholic burning off your sins sort of way. Um, but that's not something that we see in the scriptures. What we see is eternal death. What we see is the place where the fire is not quenched, where the worm dieth not. And so we see an eternality idea to spirit beings. And if angels are indeed spiritual beings, now our spirits are bound into our bodies and thus bound to this material world for as long as our bodies exist, as long as they are alive. But in that they are spiritual, they exist beyond the realm of the material. We might describe this in many ways. In today's vernacular, we would perhaps describe them as existing in another dimension. When we say that, we speak of how science has sought to classify our material existence into, historically, four dimensions, length, width, height, and time. Now, through string theory, that would, that's been extended to 11 dimensions, uh, though only the four that are there can be quantified and identified, but none of the math works unless you have 11 dimensions. These things, thus, these beings exist in a realm that is unseen, but no less real than any other realm. And that's very important. They exist in a realm, a realm that is unseen, but it is no less real than, than what we experience in the material. And they interact, as we see in Scripture, both with the unseen realm, but they're also able to interact with the realm of the temporal and the material. So examples of this, of course, are all over the place in Scripture. We see angels appear to men. We see angels sit with Abraham, interact with him, eat with him, walk away in Genesis 18. Two of those angels would then end up in Sodom, interact with Lot. They would even take Lot and his wife and physically pull them out of the city before it is destroyed. But these same angels were able, in Genesis 19 verse 11, to strike the men of the city who had come out to rape them with blindness, showing a supernatural capacity that certainly transcends the capacity of men. We see in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, God opened the eyes of Elisha's servant to see the mountain around the prophet filled with invisible beings in chariots of fire ready to defend the prophet against the armies of the enemy. And so angelic beings are recognized to be invisible, but able to show themselves and able to interact with the material world also able to look like men. But often in visions, angels take on other forms, as we know them in Scripture, usually in a symbolic manner to teach us something about themselves. Isaiah chapter 6 describes a class of angels called the seraphim, that word literally meaning the burning ones, once again, an association with light. He saw these seraphim, and he describes them as having six wings. He says, with twain, that would be two, they cover their face, and with twain, they cover their feet, and with twain, they did fly. These angels surrounded the throne of God and cried out, extolling God's holiness. Ezekiel 10 describes cherubim, of which it would appear that Lucifer was one. Now, as we think of cherubs in Renaissance art, you think of little naked babies flying around. That's not what cherubs were. Um, that, that, that has nothing to do with cherubs as it would relate to the scriptures. Uh, cherubs, of, as it would appear, Lucifer being one of these, described as having wings in the hands of men. Many times they are seen as having four faces. One of a cherub, 
one of a man, one of a lion, and one of an eagle, able to move in any direction without turning as Ezekiel saw them, pictured as watchmen, pictured as guardians. Now we've come across the spiritual reality of angels quite clearly in our recent studies in Hebrew. Recall, recall in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, Paul contrasted angels to the sun. And as he did so, he said this in Hebrews 1, 7, And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And this was quoting from Psalm 104, verse 4. Spirits are described thus as a flame of fire, which we extend to a reflection of their power of their judgment, but which pales in comparison to God's description of the sun, right? Beginning in verse 8, Paul wrote, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So it is we find that angels, once again, created beings, ministers of God, ministers in fire, uh, in a flaming fire, ministering spirits, and yet certainly inferior in classification to the sun. They're created beings. They're spiritual beings. Third, they are confirmed beings. As we look at the scope of spiritual beings in the Bible, we find that there are two categories. There are spirit beings that worship and serve God, and there are spirit beings that serve Lucifer, Satan. And we would normally classify these in our vernacular as angels and demons. But we would also understand that the class of spirit beings that we call demons is actually a class made up of angelic beings who chose at some time in the past to follow Satan rather than to follow God. And we get only minimal insight into this in the Bible, but here is what we generally know. And again, there's inference here and, and uh, there, there are, are piecing together of ideas, but, and I haven't done this this evening, but it's very similar to what I did in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember at the beginning of our study in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, I spent 12 weeks laying foundational material. And as I laid that foundational material, um, the, the substance of that foundation was this, that depending on how you interpret the Bible, it is going to fundamentally change what you understand from it. And as we interpret the Bible literally, grammatically, historically, contextually, this adds fundamental constraints to what we understand from the Word of God and how we go about uh, binding our understanding of the Word of God. Now, if a person wants to play a little bit more fast and loose with literal interpretation, and of course by literal we don't mean that everything, we, we don't take it literal like a child takes everything literally, but we take it naturally, right? We account for the fact that it, it might be poetry or apocryphal literature, or it might be um, uh, um, um, prophecy, or it might be uh, history, narrative, and, and we allow that to, to inform us so that when, when John speaks of, uh, let's say when, when Daniel speaks of a, a leopard with four heads and four wings, right? We recognize here that he's seeing a vision and that's literally what he's seeing, but it, it does represent something, right? It represents the Grecian empire. It does not represent an actual, he did not literally, he wasn't there writing while a leopard was walking by with four heads and four wings. That's not what was happening there. He was seeing a vision. And so we interpret that literally, but we also recognize the limitations based upon the genre of literature in which we're operating. So um, various uh, groups have called this interpreting naturally rather than literally. You take the natural meaning of the text based upon its genre and its expectation and you draw out that natural meaning from the text. But if you're going to play a little bit fast and loose with the natural interpretation or a grammatical interpretation or a historical interpretation or a contextual interpretation, then you're going to come to different conclusions, right? And so I'm taking some of these things for granted as it relates to the nature of how it is we interpret the scriptures, again, because this is just a survey of these various ideas. And so we get minimal insight. We believe, as we've already laid out in that first point, that angels existed at the creation of the world. And at the end of the creation week, the Bible says that God looked out at his creation and it was very good. 
we would draw from this an interpretive principle whereby we would believe that no part of God's creation that, had, that, that existed at that time when God looked at his creation and called it very good had yet fallen outside of God's will, had yet fallen outside of God's plan, which would lend us to the conviction that the angels, having already been created at the beginning of the creation week, were at this point yet fully in line with God, and so there were none that were out of sync with God, thus Lucifer had not yet fallen. And so Lucifer, at the end of the creation week, in that the creation was called by God very good, in, in every facet of it, it was very, God looked at everything he had made and it was very good. To that end, we would acknowledge within our wheelhouse of interpretation that Lucifer and, the, and all of the angels existed, but none had yet fallen into sin. And then sometime between the end of the creation week and the beginning of the temptation of Adam and Eve, uh, when, when Lucifer appears as a serpent in the garden, there was the fall. Now, how long was that? We don't know. We can't, we might be able to know, but it depends on how we interpret the rest of the word of God. The question is, did the, did the 900 plus years that Adam lived account for the day he was created or the day that he actually began to degenerate? Was, was he aged from the day he was created or the day that the curse began to work its way, uh, work, work its, its will upon him? Because in theory, if Adam and Eve are, are, are in a, a existence where everything is very good, there is no sin. If there is no sin, then there is no degeneration of the body. And if there's no degeneration of the body, there's no aging. And if there's no aging, then in theory, who knows how long they could have lived in an Edenic state prior to the fall. However, most people of our, in, in, in our interpretive wheelhouse, as I've been calling it tonight, um, would, would believe that, that the, everything took place fairly quickly, that Satan's fall took place fairly quickly, then Adam and Eve's fall after that took place very quickly, and um, you can believe whatever you want on that. Um, but we would recognize that at the end of the creative week, God looked at everything that he had created and it was very good. So we surmise through scripture that the anointed cherub Lucifer, sometime after Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, when God called everything very good, but before Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, when Satan in the form of a serpent tempted mankind, uh, somewhere between that time, Lucifer said this, as quoted in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in the second half of verse 13. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. So Lucifer allowed self to enter into his heart. Notice all of the times where you hear, I will. He allowed self to enter into his heart, and through self came pride, and through pride came self-deception, and through self-deception came rebellion. And take note of that, because that happens whenever self finds its way in. If it doesn't get stopped, self will always bring about pride, in your heart or in mine. And if pride isn't stopped, it will bring about self-deception. And if self-deception isn't stopped, it will end with rebellion. So Lucifer was determined to exalt himself above the stars of God above the other angels, the stars of God, right? That's what we see here. And ascend to the throne of the Most High. And it would appear that at some point what Lucifer said in his heart came out of his lips. For in a poetic description of Lucifer, depicted as a great red dragon being cast out of heaven in Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, we read these words. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads, and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now there's a lot going on here. Again, my Revelation series, if you want to listen to Revelation 12, would help you understand this in a more thorough way. But we discern from this the possibility that Lucifer, who would be in this context the red dragon, in his self-deluded rebellion brought as many as one-third of the angelic hosts with him into his rebellion and, then, and thus into his exile. And it would appear from Scripture that this decision was irrevocable. 
so that while mankind's decision to rebel against God was met with justice, but also with mercy, unto eventual redemption through Jesus' substitutionary death, which is exactly why Jesus became a man, right? There is no indication of the angelic beings having any such opportunity unto redemption. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, Paul describes God's angels as the elect angels, reflecting the likelihood that at the moment of Lucifer's rebellion, each angelic creature had a choice of whether to follow him or to remain with Jehovah. One-third followed Lucifer into his rebellion. Two-thirds remained with Jehovah, after which they were confirmed in their choice with no opportunity for repentance or redemption for those who rebelled. Very similar to the condition of man following his death, at which point he was confirmed in his choice for or against Christ for eternity. And so we would believe angels to be confirmed beings, having chosen to follow their creator and so absolute in holiness. And yet, also then with a unique limitation. And take note of this. If angels are confirmed beings, they had a choice to either follow Lucifer or follow Jehovah. They made that choice and thus they were elected into that choice, either as the part of the demonic horde or as a part of the elect angels. And in that we see nothing in the scriptures about God uh, bringing about a redemption for the remainder of the created order, save the redemption by proxy of redeeming man over whom the created order was given dominion, or uh, over whom, did I say that right? Over whom was given dominion over the created order? Let's just, man had dominion over the created order, right? So when man fell, the created order went down with him. We have no reference point, or angels thus have no reference point to understand the nature of grace. Angels have no reference point to understand the nature of redemption because they've never needed grace or ever had the opportunity to accept redemption. They were created in holiness and those who remained were confirmed in their holiness and those who rebelled were confirmed in their rebellion. So angels, we see then, the elect angels, God's angels, we would believe based upon this interpretive method to be confirmed beings. They had a choice, they made their choice, and now they are confirmed in their choice either unto being servants of Jehovah or servants of Lucifer. In that angels are spiritual beings, created beings, spiritual beings, confirmed beings, we see third, or fourth, excuse me, angels are powerful beings. So angels are spiritual, and we find that they are not subject to the various elements of the material world. So when compared to mankind, they are considerably more powerful in that sense. We studied a few weeks ago that God had chosen an angel in Exodus 23 to lead Israel into the promised land. And he warned the nation in Exodus 23 verse 21 not to provoke this angel because he would not pardon their transgressions, uh, alluding to the reality that this angel had a measure of delegated authority to mete out judgment upon the nation for their offenses. We consider already from Genesis 19 the capacity of the angelic beings there to strike the men of Sodom with blindness. We see angels able to move in and out of our time and space to appear and to disappear. But we also find, particularly through the actions of the demonic realm, the capacity of, an of angelic beings, of these spirits, to oppress and possess material objects, including humans themselves. We find particularly in the New Testament these evidences of demonic possession. We see an evil spirit upon Saul in the Old Testament as well. We also see interactions with familiar spirits in the Old Testament. We would not see such evidences from angelic beings, elect angels, for it would appear from Scripture that though these angelic entities are capable of oppressing and possessing material objects, they are strictly forbidden from doing it by God. Now, they possess enough will to be able to do it, though God would say no, just as God has given us volition, and yet 
to do so comes with inherent consequences. Of particular note in trying to understand this concept and the, uh, in the extent of its helpfulness, which is not full, is the account of the demoniac of Gadara, of which we read this in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, and then I'll skip to verse 15. And they came over unto the other side of the sea into the company of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs and no man could bind him, no, not with chains because he had been often bound with fetters and chains and his chains had been plucked asunder by him and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. So here we see an account of a man who, being possessed with a, de a demonic spirit, demonic spirits in this case, was able through their presence to exhibit supernatural strength, to break cords, to break chains. In Acts chapter 16, verse 16, Paul encounters a Philippian woman possessed with a spirit of divination, able to divine the future through demonic power. We see this more commonly in the Old Testament, such as with the witch of Engedi, who was attached to what the Bible calls a familiar spirit, which would act as a medium between the dead and the living to tell the future to perform other supernatural acts. Now, just briefly, let's be clear about something here. God said in Exodus chapter 22, verse 18, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. He would warn more thoroughly in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 through 12, there shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer, for all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. So as we consider this, witches, wizards, warlocks, enchanters, charmers, consulters with evil spirits, diviners, soothsayers, psychics, necromancers, those that have a familiar spirit, have attached themselves to a spirit, or more specifically have had a spirit attach them, become attached to them. These things are real. These things are real. And they are an abomination to the Lord. They are used in fairy tales. They are used in fantasies. They are spoken of in these terms. But don't mistake these things for fantasies. These things are real. They are not to be messed with. They are not to be played around with. They are dangerous. So much so that God said, because of these things, because the people of the land are doing these things, I am driving them out of the land. He was judging them for these things because this was an abomination unto the Lord. In the days of Israel, witches were to be immediately killed because they dabbled in the things of which they did not know. They were, bringing, they were empowering the spirit realm in the material realm. They invited evil into a land. They, divided, they invited evil unto a people. And it often doesn't come across as evil. That needs to be made clear too. Look into modern day witchcraft and they will say the same thing that every generation of witches has said. That they are an organization intent on elevating the capacity of man to do good. And this is no wonder. For Satan often appears, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, as an angel of light. Satan's goal is not necessarily to bring the world in. We, oftentimes in, in, uh, in the, the secular concept of Satan, they see Satan as being behind every war, Satan being behind every evil act. But the fact of the matter is, 
Satan is behind rebellion, pride, and self in every form. Satan is the God of this world, the father of lies. He is behind self. He is behind pride. He is behind rebellion. And as such, there are any number of things in this world that are said to be good, said to be positive, said to be beneficial from a humanistic standpoint that 100% have the stamp of Satan upon them. Good intentions and right desires, but exercised through the powers of darkness and leading directly to hell. Young people are, in particular are allured by such things, whether that be out of fun, whether that be out of the promise of power or of fame or of opportunity, some desiring and finding sometimes true power in this world, selling themselves for fame, for money, for power, but it always comes with its price, pain and torment. The spirit realm is not something to mess with. And I, I want to make that clear. Again, that's not the direct focus of our message today. And this is not just about dabbling in the occult. As believers, the spirit realm is not something to mess with either. These men and these women who go around seeking to perform exorcisms, to engage with demonic entities and to battle them, to command them in the name of Jesus to do things, these are marks, according to Paul and according to Jude, of false teachers. These are marks of ignorant men who are dabbling in things that they cannot possibly understand. Because the spirit realm is something that we cannot possibly understand. Men who write books describing the echelons of Satan's minions, giving them names, then rebuking them, uh, them and praying against them by name. Here's the question, where do these names come from that they give to these angelic demonic beings? Where does this intelligence come from about their echelons and their hierarchies? It doesn't come from the Bible. It, it's not in there. So if not the Bible, then where? Well, if you look at these interviews, oftentimes the interview looks like this. If you look it up on YouTube, ex-Satanist gives us insight. Former warlock tells about his experience. So those who have come out of evil. But here's my question. Other than the anecdotal experiences that they had, how can I know that anything a demonic entity has taught these people is true? John chapter 8, verse 44 calls Satan the father of lies. Why would Christians build their understanding of the spirit realm upon the intelligence of one of Satan's minions? Be careful, Christian. Anecdotal stories about the nature of, of interactions with, with a demonic realm are interesting and might be, be helpful or valid in one way, shape, or form. I've got a few that I, I enjoy and, 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 and use myself. But when we start to trust the intelligence of the enemy to build a framework upon which we operate in, the, in our realm, we are playing with something that's very dangerous. Notice what Jude says as Jude warns against false teachers. This is against false teachers. He says this, Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things they corrupt themselves. The, pur uh, the, the purpose of our time this evening is not to speak about the demonic, but only as examples of the power of, of, of the angelic. But, but this point needs to be very clearly made. We need to respect the demonic just as we respect the angelic. And if even Michael, the great archangel, would not rebuke Lucifer as they were contending over the body of Moses, only invoke the Lord's rebuke, the Lord rebuke thee, he would not himself say, I rebuke thee, but only the Lord rebuke thee. Then when you see these guys on TV saying, Satan, I rebuke you, 
you are reading about Jude. You are reading the men, you are reading about the men in Jude who are playing with things that they have no idea about. They are messing around with stuff that is so above their pay grade. They're ignorant. And it says in those things that they do know, they corrupt themselves. And then they spend all of their time playing around with things that they have no idea about. Don't mess with the spiritual realm. And if you see someone who is engaging in this sort of a thing, at best, they're doing it in ignorance. But if they are in a position of authority, they have fallen into the category of false teacher, whether they know it or not. And be careful with them. If, you, if, if you're dealing with someone in, in, in personally that, that does these things, help them. Help them understand that they're dealing with things that they cannot possibly understand and that it's dangerous. If you turn on the television and you hear these things, turn it back off. Find someone else to listen to. Okay, back to Mark. We see in Mark 5 the ability of the spirit realm to possess men and to give them power. When we see their ability to go from being to being, to attach themselves to those beings, we see this idea. And we see that because the demons were being cast out, there was a possibility of them going to be tormented before the day of judgment. Now, according to the parallel passage in Luke 8, and again, we don't have all the time in the world to go to these passages. According to the parallel passage in Luke 8, they were, uh, the, the torment before the time was to be sent into the bottomless pit. This bottomless pit is a place that we know as we compare Scripture with Scripture, is a place where angels are held in chains of darkness until the time of judgment. And so there is a contingency of dark angels who rebelled against God, who were held in a place of judgment called the bottomless pit until the time that they would be judged. And as the angel describes it here in Mark, it is a place of torment for them until this time of judgment. Now, we also see thus that there are other angels who are not in this place of judgment and of torment or of chains awaiting judgment, but they are allowed to roam freely until the time that judgment comes. What's the distinguishing between them? I'm going to give you a theory. This is not something we find in the scriptures, but this angel appeals to Jesus and says, do not cast me out and send me into the pit before the time. Send me into torment before the time. I believe personally that there are certain lines that cannot be crossed in the angelic realm, the spirit realm. And when a demonic entity crosses that realm, specifically by possessing a human, a human being, by entering into a human being and possessing them, that at which point they are removed from said possession, they are judged by God by being sent into that bottomless pit. And those ones that are operating, though in rebellion to God, yet within the bounds of, of not breaching that principle of the material and the spiritual, those ones are allowed to roam and to have a measure of, of freedom. That is just my theory, because this angel, these, these angels, these demons, legion, is they do not want to be cast into the pit. They do not want to be tormented before the time of judgment. And Jesus, in a stunning act here, has mercy on these demons. And instead of sending them into the pit, the bottomless pit, he allows them instead to go and dwell those pigs. And when the demons had left the man, sent into the pigs, in verse 15, we, I did skip some verses there. I, I don't know if you noticed that. I skipped from verse 9 to verse 15. For those of you who are following along, I apologize for not mentioning that. When, when the demons left the man, he was then found by those who had come unto him in his right mind and clothed. Thus this mental illness had been suffering, that this man had been suffering was a direct result of demonic interference in his life. And this is the power of the angelic realm. As it's related to elect angels, we see this power in a different way, right? They give visions. They protect uh, men, such as stopping the mouths of lions or preserving men in the fiery furnace, driving out Israel's enemies from before them, giving men great wisdom and skill to do wonderful works, 
as the skill fell upon uh, men in, in various times, such as the men in, in the days of the Exodus to craft wonderful um, and great works. This is the power of the angelic. But make, take note of this, whether we're looking at the demonic, the fallen angel, or the elect angel, angelic beings are powerful beings. One final point this evening, uh, we could go on for several weeks on this, but we won't, of course, mentioned already. Angels are created beings, angels are spiritual beings, angels are confirmed beings, angels are powerful beings. One final point this evening, angels are purposed beings. Angels are shown to fulfill two primary purposes in this world. Elect angels, right? We're, we'll, we're, we'll come out from the demonic. I know the demonic is more interesting, but we'll come back out from the demonic and go to the elect. The two purposes of, of angelic beings are these. First, to worship God, as far as we see it in Scripture. And second, to serve God. Now, as I say this, we might say, aha, so angels have the same purpose as mankind. Well, no, this is not true. Yes, you and I are called to worship God, and you and I are called to serve God, but as the Bible presents it, we were made for a different purpose. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that God made man in his image and after his likeness. Not that man is made to look like God. Of course, we've talked about what this means before that God, um, that man is, is made in God's image. Uh, he does not have, God does not have a physical form. God is a spirit, right? So save only in the second person when he took on flesh some 2,000 years ago. But when the Bible says that man is made in God's image after God's likeness, it speaks to this idea that man has a unique capacity among God's creation, not only to be God aware, but to have a personal relationship with his creator, to bear the image of personality, of intellect, and of will as a reflective uh, reflect, reflection of the, the three-part being of God, body, soul, and spirit, as God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And we see this uniqueness reflected in the earliest days of creation where Adam and Eve, as created beings, walked with God in the cool of the day. Never do we see a record of angelic beings fellowshipping with God. We see a record of angelic beings worshiping God and serving God, but not fellowshipping with God. And that is because angelic beings, as far as we know from Scripture, do not bear the image of God as we bear the image of God. And a big part of that is that we have a material. We have this, we are this three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. Now, Psalm 8 tells us that humans have been made a little lower than the angels, in that humans clearly do not have the same spiritual capacity as the angelic. In power, in wisdom, in capacity, in dignity, we fall short. And yet Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, that there is coming a day where the dead in Christ shall judge angels reflecting the level of inheritance in the heavenlies that will elevate the spirit of mankind, our resurrected bodies, above that of the angelic creation through our co-inheritance with Christ. But what we do see time and again is a record of angels doing these things, worshiping God in singleness of mind and serving God with singleness of mind. But mankind was created with one other purpose, which is why the redemptive plan happened. Mankind was created to fellowship with God, to have a personal relationship with God, and that's special. Don't lose sight of that. Now, as it relates to angels, worshiping and serving, we see any number of examples of this. Of course, I've already cited Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees the seraphim worshiping God around his throne, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. We see it in Luke chapter 2 again, the announcement of Jesus' birth, where the angels, as they speak to the shepherds, we see a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. We see it in the beasts of Revelation around the throne of God, a description which matches, by the way, the cherubim of Ezekiel chapter 10, which give glory and honor and thanks to him that sits upon the throne who liveth forever and ever. We see praise around the throne in particular being an integral element of the existence of angels. And then we see the very name itself, messenger. And we understand that angels exist to fulfill the will of God. They are angelic representatives of God. 
be it the angel of the Lord who appeared and spoke to men, the angel that ministered the law, the angel Gabriel who would bring direct messages of God to men such as Daniel and Zechariah and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, the angel Michael called an archangel who is the guardian of Israel and delegated to their protection and well-being. We see that angels serve God in singleness of heart with love and with patience, with grace and with utter and abject selfishness. God says it, they do it. If the fruit of Lucifer's great rebellion began with the seed of self in his heart, then the essence of the angelic life is a life of utter and abject selflessness in the face of the almighty, invisible, only wise God. And as we wrap up our time this evening, that is what I would desire us to draw from the life of angels. What can we learn from angels? Well, angels cannot teach us about grace because they do not know grace. Angels cannot teach us about redemption because they have not, under, they have not experienced redemption as far as we know. Angels cannot teach us of forgiveness in that sense because of the nature of not understanding experientially the forgiveness of Christ. As we recognize from Scripture, the fact that we uh, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you, right? So we relate the essence of our forgiveness to the essence of the forgiveness we've received in Christ. Angels cannot relate themselves to that in that they have not received it. But what can they teach us? What the angels lack in these areas of humanity related to grace and redemption and forgiveness, they have all the more in these areas of utmost importance to the church. They're examples of absolute single-minded worship, whereby they lay aside any thought but to be in that moment of worship, adoring, thanking, extolling the God of all flesh and creation, falling down on their faces before him, exalting him around his throne day and night. We can learn from that, Christians. We can learn about the nature of worship. We can learn about the selflessness of worship. We can learn about this idea. We can guard ourselves from the danger of trying to wrap worship around ourselves, trying to make worship convenient, trying to make worship uh, interesting, trying to make worship somehow about us, when in fact worship has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. We can also learn something about service, whereby angels single-focusedly devote themselves to God's message, to God's direction, to God's intent, and to God's purposes. If God says it, they do it. Where God wants them, they are. What God needs of them, they accomplish. Utterly setting aside any and every priority of their own in order to devote their existence to the service of the God who created them. For indeed, that is what they have been created to do. And we are created in Christ unto an end. That we might worship him, that we might serve him, that we might fellowship with him. We can learn from the angel's single-mindedness in this regard. May it be so with us as well. I desired to bubble up in this evening something of interest, something of note, something which we don't think about perhaps all that often, something which takes some, some scriptural uh, uh, study and, and, and um, systematizing in order to get a, a flavor for. But that doesn't mean we cannot draw from it this lesson. How's your worship this evening? How's your service this evening? Can you draw some, some interesting lessons from the nature of angelic beings as it relates to their single-mindedness in these regards? When you come across angels in Scripture, when you come across these messengers, take note of what they're doing. Take note of how they are doing it. Take note of what their worship looks like when you're reading a passage of Scripture that relates the angels to worship. And then ask yourself, how is my worship? When you're reading about an, a, angelic beings in the service portion, when they are serving, when they are bringing messages, when they are uh, guiding men through thoughts or visions or whatever it might be, consider their service. 
Consider their single-mindedness in it. And ask that question, how is my service? A look at angels does not just teach us about them. It can teach us some things about ourselves as well and help us to understand a little bit better the nature of these elements of worship and selfless service in our own lives in our church. And perhaps thus help us to be better children of God. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.